While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. Hey everybody, this is Charlene McPherson, LCSWC. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am Benjamin Tights, Registered Psychological Associate. I'm he, him, his. And welcome back to Mental Health Quest. It's episode 9, we're almost to 10. It's pretty exciting. It is. Um, <laughs> Uh, this episode is going to be on bipolar, but at first we wanted to uh, thank you to say thank you to our listeners um, and our supporters. Obviously, if you're listening and you like what you hear, I was about to say see, but you don't see us, like what you hear, um, please rate us and review us on whatever platform you're on um, so that others can find our amazing content and um you know, be as informed as you are. Like, this is good stuff. Uh, we want it spread around as much as possible. Also, we're here to answer any of your questions about mental health or, you know, things like that. So please send us any questions you may have um, that we can cover on the podcast. If you would like to reach out to us individually, just email at us mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find our podcast on Twitter and Facebook at MHQ p podcast <laughs> capital p podcast there you go i still haven't figured out how to say that but uh that's it for the beginning stuff benjamin yes we have a very special guest with us today dr christina tyler she is a licensed psychologist in california and in texas she's that awesome she works in full-time private practice as both a clinical and a forensic psychologist Dr. Tyler's forensic work includes testifying as an expert in child development, domestic violence, child abuse, immigration, and trauma issues. She provides mental health and risk assessments in various settings. She has presented nationally and internationally on several topics, and she has worked for five years managing crisis teams, conducting and overseeing suicide and homicide risk assessments. She's taught psychology classes at the college level for 25 years, and has served as the president of the Orange County Psychological Association, the Ethics Committee Chair, and the Legislative Advocacy Chair. She has conducted more than 3,000 clinical and forensic mental health evaluations and testifies as an expert in psychological testing. Her clinical work primarily involves working with difficult populations, such as children and adolescents with behavior disorders, self-harm behaviors, and chronic suicidality. However, her primary clinical specialization is bipolar disorder with children and adolescents as well as adults. And that is what she's here to speak with us about today. Welcome, Dr. Tyler. Yeah. 
Thank you. Good morning, Charlene and Benjamin. Oh, we're so excited to have you. We love having experts on to keep us straight, right? And I, I learn something every single episode, so I'm very excited. <laughs> Me too. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Usually what we start off with is just kind of um, uh, letting our experts, you know, kind of give us the definition of what uh, bipolar is, what your definition is, what you see, those type of things. Sure. So, of course, there's a clinical definition for bipolar disorder, um, but I like to look at bipolar disorder in more of a layperson uh, definition to make it a little easier to understand. Um, bipolar disorder is kind of a combination of depression and what we call mania, which is a lot of energy and euphoric feelings. Um, and people kind of rotate between those two poles, which is why they call it bipolar disorder. It used to be called manic depression uh, for that same reason, because of going between those two, uh, those two extremes. The other thing that I think of as bipolar disorder, although it is classified as a mental health diagnosis, it actually is more of a chemical situation that is more medical in nature and long long term and is very genetic um, as far as where it comes from for the most part. Yes, definitely. That's exactly what I've I've found as well. So I'm glad I'm on the right track. I think it's really great that we're mentioning that mental health diagnoses have chemical bases, that they're biological. A lot of times because of the stigma associated with mental illness and mental health conditions, you know, people say, oh, you're just crazy or you're mad. But mental illnesses are biological. They're brain disorders. And so they're just as much physical as, you know, say a heart condition, right? I think that's an important point, Benjamin, because um, of the stigma associated. And bipolar disorder probably has one of, in my opinion, uh, one of the biggest stigmas because sometimes people feel okay and sometimes they don't feel okay. And what I find a lot of times is the public image of someone with a bipolar disorder tends to be when they're feeling okay or when they're feeling a little bit up. And so many times the public doesn't see the severe depression that goes along with this disorder. And so people wonder and they ask and there's a stigma of well when i see you you seem fine or last time you were doing really well and the difficulty of understanding that the ups and downs are constant for people they can last a long time but often when people are at their worst um, they're not going to be seen by others who don't understand how bad it can actually get yeah, and on the, on that um, on that note, would you mind kind of describing a little bit more in detail what mania may look like and what depression may look like? Certainly. So depression is probably what we see and hear about more often, and honestly, it's also the um, symptoms that most people get treatment for. Uh, the the research shows that depression affects people with bipolar disorder almost twice as much as they have manic episodes. So depression, and, and we think of depression as feeling down, feeling sad, um, having a lack of energy, 
wanting to isolate, feeling hopeless, feeling worthless, feeling lethargic, um, struggling to sleep, but being tired, those types of things when we think of depressive symptoms. However, I do want to point out that with a bipolar disorder, you do see those symptoms, but they are even more extreme than what people might see with a regular depression. So I often hear people who don't understand bipolar depression talking about things like, oh yeah, I've been depressed before. But I want to emphasize that a bipolar depression um, is like a depressive disorder on steroids. And people describe to me feelings like a leaden paralysis where their arms or their legs feel heavy. Like I've had people describe it that they've had cinder blocks on their legs. And so it's a very physical feeling of lack of energy, a very physical feeling of not being able to do anything. The other part of bipolar depression um, that I hear people describe a lot is feeling lazy or feeling like they can't get anything done. Um, one of the things that I like to explain is we have a word for that, and it's called avolition. Um, we've all kind of heard the term volition. You do something of your own volition on your own power or strength. Um, one of the symptoms of the bipolar depression is a chemical avolition where the body or the brain is not making enough chemical to actually have a feeling of motivation or being able to get up and do things. So the avolition is a very real and very chemical part of a bipolar depression. Switching to mania, the mania comes in spurts. There's the typical idea that the depression lasts for a few weeks, then there's a few days of mania, and then we go back to depression. Um, I don't find that that typical presentation happens for most people. One of the things I find is some people have more mania than they do depression. Other people struggle with depression for months where they get a little bit of the manic feelings and then they go back to depression. Other times the manic feelings and episodes can last for several months. One of the criteria... Um, or one of the descriptions of a bipolar disorder is that people have normal episodes in between. Some people do, but many of the people I treat do not. And they, have, they go between either the depressive symptoms or the manic symptoms. Manic symptoms, the way that I ask people when I'm assessing is I ask, do you ever have times where the clouds seem to part and the depression goes away and you feel better? And sometimes when you feel better, you feel like you can get all sorts of things done, like you have a lot of energy, like you actually feel good about yourself for a while. Um, I describe it to some people where it goes up to the extreme, where they don't need sleep for several days. And I ask people the difference between the depressive insomnia, where they're tired but can't sleep, and the manic insomnia, where they don't need sleep and are not tired. The feeling of being able to start a number of projects, being on top of the world in the extreme, and also being able to accomplish anything. Um, it, mania in its extreme can also lead to psychosis and having psychotic episodes where people um, do very impulsive things, often don't remember 
some of the things that have happened and they lose the ability to look forward, what I call insight, but the ability to look forward and understand and pre-think what the consequences might be. One of the dangers of the mania specifically is it feels good. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels really good. And I describe it to some people as people think you might be on drugs, but you're not. And so there's a rapid speech pattern. There is um, a feeling of euphoria. And this part of the bipolar disorder can be what I would call maybe addicting, but people enjoy the feeling after weeks or months of feeling down and lethargic and, and like you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Feeling good, feeling... Um, an inflative sense of self-esteem, feeling like you can get things done and getting things done is such a change for people that it's, um, I mean, people, people wait for this. They, they crave this. And so it's, you know, it's that sort of a feeling. I would want that feeling, especially after feeling days or weeks of the opposite. Yeah. I've had client, uh, I had a client, tell me the way that they experienced mania was they felt like they could do no wrong. They felt powerful. They felt like Superman. And I found that a very interesting kind of description because of the dichotomy between the mania and the depression, as Dr. Tyler had mentioned, you know, if you're going to be for, you know, weeks to months in such a low state where you have physical heaviness that you can't even move. Yeah. The, the, when, as Dr. Tyler said, the clouds open up and you can do things, yeah, I would probably feel like Superman too in that kind of situation. But I think, um, Dr. Tyler, correct me if I'm mistaken, but can there also be, uh, with mania, uh, heightened uh, aggression or risky behaviors? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons mania is actually, though it feels very good, it's actually a very dangerous phase um, for that reason. In addition to, in the extremes, um, visual and auditory hallucinations, as people go towards the mania, the um, because what we consider the frontal lobes of the brain, the, the, the thinking, um, the reasoning, um, kind of turns off during these manic episodes. And so we do see a lot of risk-taking behaviors, impulsive behaviors, hypersexuality, um, use of drugs and alcohol in the extreme, things like impulsive spending, um, impulsive relationship issues, uh, things that can be that can get people in a lot of trouble later on, uh, rule-breaking behavior, and people find out or end up in in jail or with some sort of criminal charges uh, that in normal situations they would never have done. Um, That can be very dangerous. The other thing is that there are times, especially as people get older or as bipolar disorder is untreated, where the depressive symptoms and the manic symptoms can mix, and we call that a mixed episode. There's also episodes of what we call rapid cycling, and what you see during those times is the manic episode is no longer fun and euphoric. What happens is people are simply more agitated, 
more irritable, they can be more aggressive, uh, more angry, and it doesn't feel good anymore, but they still have excess energy and excess um, motivation, yet it comes out in a feeling that is not not euphoric. It, it's just simply irritable. It's simply angry. Uh, people lash out at other people. Uh, sometimes there are arguments or relationship issues or even physical aggression that is not typical of the person at other times. And is this where you might see more uh, suicidal ideation or, or a higher risk for suicidal ideation in action? Absolutely. One of the things I like to remind my patients is the importance, once they've been prescribed medication, of staying on medication um, for this specific reason, because bipolar disorder has the highest rate of suicide, completed suicides, of any mental health disorder. And one of the reasons for that is because when people are feeling down and that that the feeling of not being able to move, the lack of motivation, there may be a lot of suicidal thoughts and a lot of suicidal ideations and maybe even plans. But the energy to carry those plans out right. is not usually there. And so what happens when the clouds part, especially if the episode is a mixed episode or people are feeling more irritable and they're not feeling the euphoria yet, all of a sudden they have energy with which to carry out these plans or ideations. And so the most risky time for someone with a bipolar disorder is when they start feeling additional energy, when they start coming out of the depression, but have not reached that euphoric state yet. And we see a lot of suicide attempts and a lot of completed suicide during that time because now we have the energy to carry that out. And that can be a very risky time. Interestingly, that's also the time when family and friends feel relief. Oh, they're feeling better. This is the time when we need to watch um, and be cautious. And this is the time when for the individual, the insight and the ability to realize what's happening for them goes away. And I want to go back to the medication for a minute because this is also the reason that many people will stop taking their medication. They're feeling better. They don't want to be taking medication all their lives and things like that. And they long for that feeling of euphoria, which like, like drugs, sometimes you feel it the first few times and you long for it, but it doesn't come back the same way all the time or sometimes ever again. And so we're constantly chasing that. And this is the primary reason that people do not continue on medication, which is incredibly dangerous because the manic episode can be so dangerous and people can end up in the hospital, not just because there's been a suicide attempt, but because they are, they get to a point where they are not thinking clearly and unable to take care of themselves on a day-to-day -day basis doing risky and dangerous things. But the suicide aspect is a very, very high risk in this disorder at this time. I wanted to uh, come back to something you just mentioned, um, that people are oftentimes brought to the hospital because they can't care for themselves, um, that they're doing all these risky behaviors. When People are in a depressive state also. They are similarly not able to care for themselves, but in a very different way, right? Yes, that's correct. 
I, it reminds me um, when I used to work in the psych hospital, uh, granted majority of the you know patients were more on the schizophrenia spectrum, but bipolar disorder was very well represented and had this one patient that came in when they were in the kind of in between the the mania and the depressive states and so they presented as pretty you know well functioning at the time and we were all very like confused why did this person get you know brought to the hospital they seemed to be fine and then as the days progressed they started sliding more into the mania um and uh for that patient the the time in between depression and mania lasted maybe a couple days and so I wanted to ask Dr. Tyler, you know, you had mentioned that, yes, there's mixed episodes and there's rapid cycling, but is there a kind of average of, you know, a time of the time frame of the kind of, I guess you call it a middle state between the mania and the depressive states? Like how long can that typically last for when they might have a more normal sense of thinking? So that one is a really tough question because it varies so widely. There are some people with bipolar disorders that have depressive episodes every few years, that may have a manic episode every few years, and have normal periods for without medication for long periods of time. That's very unusual. And usually those people have not been diagnosed yet. Um, but there are also periods of time where there is no period in the middle of so-called normalcy where someone's cycles very quickly from the depressive episode to the manic episode with nothing in between. Uh, there really is no typical normal period of time, although there is a, the diagnostic criteria says that sometimes there is a normal period in between. I, I will tell you in my actual practice, I don't see them often and I don't see them last long. There is, however, I, I want to point out two levels of bipolar disorder. There's a bipolar one and a bipolar two. You will see more normal levels, people being able to be in a normal functioning period more often in bipolar two, which is a we still see the depression in a bipolar 2, but we have never seen a full-blown manic episode in a bipolar 2. We see what we call hypomanic episodes, which are some people, I, I hear them missay it by saying hypermanic. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about hypomanic, which is a step below a full-blown manic episode. And when someone has never had a full-blown manic episode, they would not have a diagnosis of bipolar 1. That is the primary criteria of a bipolar 1 diagnosis is having at least one full-blown manic episode in their lifetime. They may have had it at 18 and be 32 and have never had another one, but it's still a bipolar 1, which is the more severe, because they have had a full-blown manic episode. So back to the bipolar 2, some people can live chronically in a hypomanic episode or state for years and years. And they are just energetic people who get a lot of things done. The difference between the hypomanic episode and the manic episode is the hypomanic does not usually impair functioning. 
in work or relationships or things like that. And often it doesn't require specific treatment unless the depressive symptoms are severe. But there are many people in business, in, um, in other aspects that we meet that are high energy people, um, and they just are able to, to manage and in a constant state of hypomania. However, if the state ever gets, when, and I'm sorry, when people remain in a constant state of hypomania, however, there is still a risk of this, I, I will call it decompensating, even though the energy level goes up, of uh, digressing into a full-blown manic episode, which then can be more severe um, the longer that someone has been in a hypomanic episode. So the question sometimes I'm asked is, well, if it's hypomanic, does it need to be treated? The depressive symptoms, if they impair functioning, should be treated. The hypomanic episode possibly should be treated. It depends on what's happened before that episode and what happens after the episode and the person's trajectory as far as what their disorder looks like for them. Frequently, it does need treatment. Sometimes it does not. But the danger is, is moving into a full-blown manic episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I really, um, I really appreciate you getting into the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two, because it is a pretty big difference, right? But it's not <laughs> very, a very well-known difference, like if you're not a, a clinician. So I also wanted to kind of come in here and ask, like, how do you tell the difference between, you know, say ADHD, which has, you know, very, very, a lot of energy, things like that, and bipolar, like how, how hard is it to diagnose bipolar, you know, especially in kids? I know it's, it's a, uh, there's a lot of studies going on and things like that. So if you could just speak on that a little bit. Certainly. So bipolar is, uh, in my opinion, and there has been some research for this as well, uh, one of the most difficult disorders to diagnose because it doesn't look the same in the same person on the same day. Um, as Benjamin mentioned earlier, people can look and feel different on different days. Uh, so because insight is decreased at times, because the symptoms are varied, one of the research studies that I'm familiar with said that people have at least seven different diagnoses before they are properly diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. The other difficulty is bipolar disorder is often comorbid or comes with a number of other disorders. Anxiety disorder comes with a bipolar disorder somewhere over 70% of the time. And so inexperienced uh, clinicians may look at this as depression and anxiety. The other thing that bipolar disorder comes with very frequently is a substance abuse disorder, as when people are not sure what's happening, they often try to self-medicate. And it's common that they will feel better on some sort of a substance because they don't really understand what's happening. Um, and so substance abuse, anxiety disorders frequently go together. If someone has had a full-blown manic episode and has had psychotic um, features with that episode, it may be misdiagnosed as schizophrenia. And so that can happen as well. So what we find is people being misdiagnosed often. ADHD is another common misdiagnosis. Um, the difference in 
diagnosing is really doing a thorough interview. If you are a layperson, writing down your symptoms and having an idea of what they look like and how they work for you, what the episodes look like. And for people who are experiencing this, they may not know what to tell the doctor um, or the person interviewing them because many times the insight is low or gone during these episodes. So it's really important if you are a person trying to find out what's wrong and wondering if you have a bipolar diagnosis or may have a bipolar diagnosis, um, it's really important to ask others around you. When this is going on and we argue, what am I like? When I have high energy, what do you hear? Do you sometimes think I'm on drugs when I'm not? Do I talk fast? Do I move fast? When I'm very depressed, now more, more people are able to pinpoint the depressive symptoms for themselves, um, but to write these symptoms down and to be able to have them in front of you because not all doctors know what to ask. For example, here is one of the differential diagnoses criteria that I ask my patient. For example, sleep difficulties are present in unipolar or single depression without the bipolar portion. Uh, sleep disorders are present with ADHD and sleep disorders are present with bipolar disorder as well as a number of other things. But finding out what the sleep disorder issues are and how they affect the person can really help with the true diagnosis. So when someone asks, do you have trouble sleeping? And the individual says, yes. Frequently people will move on from that and say, okay, they have sleep difficulties, but the sleep difficulties in bipolar disorder, especially, you know, and, and for a bipolar dis diagnosis, we need a hypomania or a mania. Struggling with sleep looks very different in that than it does with, with depression. So let me explain. When someone has depression, whether it's a bipolar depression or a unipolar depression, they have only depression. The sleep difficulties are that they struggle to sleep. They're very tired, but they can't sleep. So it will look like insomnia. It will look like I'm go I've gone to bed, but I'm laying here and I can't sleep. I'm staring at the ceiling. I'm possibly having thoughts that ruminate or go over and over again in my mind, and I can't sleep, but I'm exhausted. During the day, I may be overtired and nap or be exhausted and stay in bed, but I'm overtired. If I am ADHD, I will struggle with sleep difficulties as well. I will struggle going to sleep, but once I get to sleep, I'll be able to sleep, you know, a normal sleep period of time and wake up in the morning or sometimes struggle waking up in the morning, but I will get to sleep and sleep a normal period of time if I am ADHD. If I am in a manic episode, what I have is I don't need to sleep. And so what happens is I may get a limited amount of sleep, two or three hours, and be fine with that. I may spend two or three days or longer not sleeping at all and not needing to sleep. And the differential in that is the need to sleep. One of the things we know from thorough research, though, is if people are not sleeping it affects them in really significant ways. And so the danger of the manic episode and not sleeping or having only limited sleep is the tendency to have psychotic episodes without sleep. And that's very difficult. So that's one example of the questions that need to be asked 
or if you are the person trying to look at whether or not this is a diagnosis for you, being able to understand and explain, not only do I have trouble sleeping, but this is the way it affects me. If you are a person asking those questions, to ask the questions of, okay, you have sleep difficulties, but is it because you are too tired or you are not tired? Do you ever have periods of time where you don't feel you need to sleep, where you can get two, three, four hours and you're good to go? So those questions are important. Um, and looking at the energy, um, ADHD has to, number one, be diagnosed as a child. And so while people, there's certainly adult, on, adult ADHD, usually what you find with ADHD is the person has had the symptoms of it, even if they didn't get diagnosed, from early on in childhood. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get diagnosed until 35. But yeah, it's been there for a long time. <laughs> yes. And people know that about themselves. They mm -hmm. know that they've had. And, and when we talk, um, you had asked me two questions. And I want to talk about childhood bipolar disorder separately. Um, but it'll also explain a little bit with the ADHD a little bit more. But people who have ADHD know that they've had ADHD. And it doesn't look like staying up for days. It doesn't necessarily look like euphoria. It doesn't look like necessarily increased self-esteem that isn't always there. Some people with ADHD automatically have good self-esteem, but it doesn't fluctuate like it does in a bipolar disorder. Um, and there's others who, because of the ADHD, have lower self-esteem, but it doesn't look the same. And so people know that they've had it. Now, can people with ADHD have bipolar disorder and vice versa? Absolutely. Absolutely. But they are separate diagnoses. That's the confusing part, right? Is, you know, um, and, and the way that I, I usually tell my clients too, is we try and deal with like the, especially with medication and things like that, you try and deal with the mood disorder first. Um, again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but this is what I've seen in my practice. We kind of deal with the mood disorder first. So, you know, with the bipolar, with the anxiety, with the depression, we get those leveled out. And as soon as we get those leveled out, we kind of look and see if there's any kind of leftover stuff. And that's where you tend to get, you know, more of the ADHD diagnosis. Is that kind of what you find as well? Absolutely. And one of the things I encourage, um, actually, let me say, three things in, in what you said. Mm -hmm. um, the first one, I know you mentioned you're not a psychiatrist. Obviously, we are not psychiatrists. However, if you are treating people, if you are a clinician and you are treating people with a bipolar disorder, it is really, really important to be aware of the medications, how they affect people, because you will be the first line of defense. Yep. A psychiatrist will see your patient maybe once a month, once they're stable, maybe once every three months. As they're getting stable, maybe even once every two weeks. But you are the person who is the first line of defense for that individual. If you see that they are sleeping less, if you see that medication is causing them difficulties, you need to express it to them and ask them to call their psychiatrist. That's the first thing I wanted to say. We as the clinicians are the first line because we see them more often for longer periods of time. If they are having difficulty, we are usually the first person they will call, not their psychiatrist. So it's really important if they are coming out of the hospital 
and still adjusting medication, we may be seeing them twice a week or three times a week. And so we are going to be the first line if we see them um, increasing in a manic episode. Um, I have a couple of patients where our first um, inclination that they may be going into a bipolar episode is that they are needing less sleep. Um, I have other patients where the first inclination that they are going into a manic episode is that they their insight decreases and they have an increase in spending, for example, or impulsive behavior. Those are things that as a therapist, we should be asking and we should know. I will tell you one other thing. When I treat people with bipolar disorder, one of the most important things for me is that they have a, I call it um, lovingly, a sponsor, but Mm -hmm. someone else that they have signed a release for me to speak with when I see these things. Because if their insight decreases, which is often one of the first symptoms of going into a manic episode, is they don't see things as clearly any longer then I need to be able to have a family member or a close friend that I can call and say, hey, we are noticing, we are coming up on a manic episode. But I also need a very close contact and relationship with the psychiatrist. I will not work with bipolar patients where they have a psychiatrist who will not speak to me, who will not collaborate with me. And psychiatrists, and if you're treating someone with a bipolar disorder, collaboration with a psychiatrist is incredibly important. Now, I do have some where the psychiatrist is very busy, but the patient has frequent access to the psychiatrist. That is also important. And so many of my patients, I will tell them, okay, it looks like we are going into a manic episode. You have not slept Well, for four days now, you need to call your psychiatrist and see what your psychiatrist recommends. Often they will help because while sleep is not only is a symptom of a man, I'm sorry, lack of sleep Mm -hmm. is a symptom of a manic episode. Often not sleeping during the depressive episode can lead someone or throw them into a manic episode. So sleep in a bipolar disorder and getting a regular and a good amount of sleep is very, very important. So sometimes a psychiatrist may prescribe a sleep aid for a few days um, and that sort of thing. So those things are important to notice and to have them then go back to their psychiatrist. The sleep, uh, I'm sorry, the, the medication issue, the working closely with a psychiatrist is absolutely critical for your person and for the clinician to be well aware of the types of medication. Um, For example, it is well known that an SSRI, an antidepressant medication, uh, such as Prozac or Paxil, that act on the serotonin, can send someone with a bipolar disorder into a manic episode. So if you know that your individual, so I'm very, I work very closely with my patients, and finding out when they see their psychiatrist. It's at the top of every note when their psychiatrist visit is. So I will ask them, did your psychiatrist make any change in medication? I certainly am not a psychiatrist, but I keep up on the changes in medication. If a psychiatrist, because they are having a significantly depressive episode, if a psychiatrist um, prescribes then an SSRI for them, then I am going to be on alert for manic symptoms for them going into a manic episode. And I need to know that if an SSRI is new, then I want to watch that. 
Um, I'm also going to be watching for certain uh, certain SSRIs um, are known to increase suicidal ideations. So I will be watching for that as well. So knowing the medication, if you treat people with bipolar disorder is really, really important to be able to say, okay, I'm seeing that you are now, you just got this prescribed, it's been two weeks. And the other thing I wanted to address, and I'll do this briefly, is that um, I also recommend working with the psychiatrist at the same time, but I also recommend to people to ask their psychiatrist about starting one medication at a time. It's very common. If someone's been hospitalized, they're going to be given a cocktail of medications, Mm -hmm. and there we are. But if a psychiatrist is starting medication, and if I'm sending a client to a psychiatrist, and I will do that with a letter of what I have seen and the symptoms they have addressed with me. I never send a patient to a new psychiatrist without a letter if I suspect they have a bipolar disorder because they can't always describe their symptoms. So they go with a letter from me. Here is what we have, what I have seen and what we have worked on. And then I tell them, ask the psychiatrist if it's acceptable, if the psychiatrist prescribes more than one medication, to start one medication at a time so that, Charlene, as you described earlier, that um, we, you know, we may have this going on or that going on and to find out what's left over is really important. But if someone starts taking anxiety medication, a mood stabilizer, and perhaps a sleep aid, we may not know what's left over. And as a clinician, I want to know what's left over. So I will coordinate with the psychiatrist and ask, can they start the mood stabilizer first? And then let's see where we are. Then add the anti-anxiety and see where we are and move from there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it's, it's it, we treat what's like most present at the moment, right? So like it's, you have to take care of those before you can get to any like underlying causes, you know, like ADHD or, you know, the anxiety and things like that. Now, um, something that I'm really interested in, because I actually, I used to work with kids um, in a residence uh, for Catholic Charities. So this came up a lot. I did see a lot of childhood diagnosed bipolar. Um, I just didn't, um, just wanted to kind of get your insight on where the research is now on, you know, um, childhood bipolar, what it looks like, you know, what resources people have to kind of figure those things out for parents, right? Absolutely. Childhood bipolar is probably my primary specialization. And while I don't treat many children any longer, um, more because of the unpredictability of my forensic work, um, it is probably what is closest to my heart. I want to I give a shout out, first of all, to parents who are raising children with bipolar disorders, whether they know they are or whether they aren't. This is the most difficult disorder for parents, ADHD, autism. I understand the difficulties of all of those and they have unique difficulties. One of the things I find though with parents with children with bipolar is by the time the child gets a diagnosis, if they ever do um, as a child, the parents have been blamed for the child's behavior, been told that they are not disciplining well or properly or enough. They have been told they need to set more boundaries, and many, many times a child's bipolar disorder has been laid at the feet of the parents, and they're at their wit's end. What I hear parents say to me, and what I'm listening for, is for a parent to say things to me like, my child is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. My child has these 
my child's been diagnosed with ADHD. And because of the ADHD, they have these three-hour screaming tantrums. ADHD does not have three-hour screaming tantrums. This is what we call a septal rage, and it comes from a place in the brain where the child has the frontal lobes, the thinking part of the brain has turned off, and the child from a very primitive place in the brain is either getting out energy or frustration that they are often very unaware of. Childhood bipolar disorder looks very different from adult bipolar disorder with more frequent rapid cycling, with more frequent mixed episodes. It frequently looks more, more like anger and irritability. Um, you don't see the high highs and the depressive symptoms nearly as much as you see the acting out behavior and the high energy. And so, yes, it's one of those things where it's, it's very difficult, especially with children, to diagnose. Now, it used to be, um, in fact, I spoke with a psychiatrist when I first started um, 15 years ago, and I was working with a psychiatrist in a mental health clinic who had been practicing at the time for about 50 years. And he told me, if we want to know if a child is ADHD or bipolar, I simply give the child a stimulant for the ADHD. And if the child ends up acting out worse or becoming more angry, then I know that the child actually has a bipolar disorder. And honestly, back then, that's really the only research we had. And that's what the psychiatrist would do. So I want people and parents especially to understand that if someone diagnoses the child with ADHD, and the child gets a psychostimulant from the psychiatrist, and the child begins being more angry, more irritable, more acting out with behaviors that have not really been seen before or rarely been seen, it may be that the child has a bipolar disorder and these things are not normal for a psychostimulant and they're not normal for a child who has never shown these behaviors before and the parent needs to call the psychiatrist or the doctor who's prescribing and say I'm seeing these symptoms or the parent if it's a and often it's a pediatrician who's prescribing for ADHD it's time to get the child to a pediatric psychiatrist now when I'm looking at differential diagnosis in children and here's one of the um, frequently bipolar disorder in children is mistaken for ADHD and vice versa. Um, but it's really, really important. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, in ADHD and bipolar disorder, both children have excess energy. One of the things you will find, though, is that children's excess energy in a bipolar, I'm sorry, in an ADHD child is impulsive. They're not thinking beforehand they are um, breaking things accidentally, and the energy is just, they're, they're kind of running around without thought, without intention. It's, it's impulsive. With a bipolar child, you will see an increase in energy, but often it is very focused energy. Um, it may be focused on projects and doing things, but more often it will be focused on acting out behaviors. If things are broken, it's intentional, or it's because of a tantrum. Um, whereas with ADHD, if something is broken, it's broken because of, it's accidentally broken because someone yeah. is playing too rough <laughs> and oops, I broke it. Um, so those are things. The sleep, as I described before, very commonly for an ADHD child, they will struggle to get to sleep 
but once asleep, they will stay asleep the whole night. A bipolar child will struggle not only to get to sleep or go to sleep easily, but they have what we call a light bulb effect, whereas at four in the morning, they are up and there's nothing you can do to get them back to sleep. I have spoken with so many parents that are exhausted because that bipolar child is awake at four or five in the morning and the parent needs some sort of sleep and they are in the kitchen tearing everything out of the cupboards, eating everything in sight, in a, a playroom or a toy room, um, playing with everything or tearing things up or, you know, being destructive or at times just getting into things that are not safe. Whereas the ADHD child, if they wake up early, frequently can go back to sleep, um, frequently will stay in their room and do things in their room, but it is a much calmer type of situation. Children with a bipolar disorder, as opposed to ADHD, are often hypersexual. You will see young children with ADHD masturbating. Parents mistake this for the child having been um, molested. It You need a very experienced clinician to separate, because these are symptoms of children being molested as well, of trauma. And so separating trauma and ADHD from a bipolar disorder um, I, I actually testified in a case many, many years ago where there was a, um, a, an allegation against someone for sexual abuse of a child because the child was masturbating frequently, um, because I also have a specialization in uh, sexual abuse. I did an evaluation and it turned out that the child was bipolar and children who are bipolar masturbate frequently because it calms them down. Um, the brain is going all over the place and the, um, and certain types of stimuli for the child will calm them down. So those are some of the difficulties that we see with, with children. So Dr. Tyler, you've mentioned uh, a lot about, uh, you know, obviously the importance of medication compliance, um, so I wanted to bring up uh, if you could discuss for a little bit about, okay, we have a client with bipolar disorder, whether it's a child or an adult, they are on medications, let's say they're keeping to the medications. What are the kind of non-medication therapies, so psychotherapies that we as clinicians or parents who are trying to find a therapist for their uh, client, what kind of therapies are more appropriate and are better used uh, for bipolar disorders. Absolutely. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to take one step back about children medication very briefly before I go into that. Um, I am not a medication pusher, but I treat so many people with bipolar disorder that I frequently, and, and bipolar disorder frequently, most often, needs medication because it is a chemical diagnosis. If I treat a child with ADHD, I will recommend to the parents, let's treat this behaviorally first and then go to medication if we need to. If the child is, is failing in school, is uncomfortable in their own skin. Otherwise, let's treat this behaviorally. If I have a child with anxiety, I want to treat these things behaviorally first. If I have a child with a bipolar disorder, I do not want to treat this behaviorally first. This is chemical. And what happens is the earlier a child is diagnosed with a bipolar disorder and the earlier they on they're on medication, the earlier we can train the brain instead of going 
high and low, high and low, high and low. We can train the brain to be more on a normal high and low um, trajectory and possibly even have the child, I don't want to say outgrow because we don't outgrow bipolar, but to make the disorder more uh, maybe treatable without medication or without as much medication as the child gets older. The young child's brain is developing. And if we can have it develop in a quote unquote more normal aspect, we want to do that. So with a bipolar disorder, medication early on is important. And parents are hesitant to put five-year-olds and six-year-olds on medication. Um, we all are. But for a bipolar child, it can be the most important thing. I saw a child once who was on medication very early. His family was a family of runners. By the time he was 13, he did not want to be on medication anymore, which is typical for adolescent children with bipolar or many other things where they're on medication. They don't want to feel that way. And so what he did is he started running with his father. He started running about five miles a day, and this got him from 13 years old to about 18 or 19 without needing medication. Now, this is not typical, but the idea of being able to substitute the adrenaline of exercise, and again, he was running five miles a day. This wasn't a couple of push-ups, um, but he was able to do that. Sometimes that's, you know, sometimes that is possible, and sometimes with good um, medication regimen and good therapy, sometimes we can manage it. Now, he also went on to become a stunt person, in, you know, so he was able to manage his bipolar disorder in other ways, um, which was fantastic for him. Going back to treatment, let me tell you a couple things about the way I treat. I mentioned earlier that when I treat someone with a bipolar disorder, adolescents or adults, children already have family involved, but with adolescents or adults, I will not treat unless there's someone that I can call when I am concerned, one, because of the suicide risk, but two, if I see them moving in one direction or another, to let someone know they are moving in this direction, they will need support. The second thing I do when I treat is psychoeducation is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, I know that cognitive behavioral therapy is, is important, and I'll explain how that works, but more important to me is the psychoeducation first. If you, if you are someone who is looking for a therapist, you want a therapist who understands bipolar very well. The way that I do this is the first three to four sessions and often with family members or support people, those first three to four sessions, I do a lot of educating. This is what to look for. This is how you know. This is what to see. This is why you stay on your medication. This is why it's important to ask your loved one, are you still taking the medication? This is why it's important during a an upcoming manic episode to administer the medication or to, you know, even to an adult to make sure that they are actually taking it. Because the insight will decrease, the need, the thought, oh, I don't need this medication anymore. So the psychoeducation component in the treatment of bipolar disorder is absolutely critical. And that psychoeducation with a treating clinician should be tailored to the individual's symptoms and um, to their, their individual symptoms and to their individual uh, trajectory of the disorder. Cognitive behavioral therapy is really important because while, um, while bipolar disorder is a very chemical disorder, there are things that people can do 
to decrease the effects of the manic episode, to keep the depression from um, being as, as deep and as long. But one of the things under cognitive behavioral therapy that I will um, really, really push is dialectical behavioral therapy. Because bipolar disorder is a mood dysregulation disorder. The moods are not regulated. There are times and situations that an individual can really manage some of this on their own. For example, that irritability. Research shows that someone with a bipolar disorder will interpret someone's positive vibes, for lack of a better word, someone's positive vibes, they will interpret that as positive. However, something neutral or negative, frequently people with a bipolar disorder will automatically interpret as negative, as hostile, and so they will react impulsively and hostily even when someone is approaching them in a neutral way. Cognitive behavioral therapy, emotional regulation therapy, like dialectical behavior therapy, can help the person manage and take a step back and ask themselves, okay, what am I actually seeing here? What do I need to do to manage and to, you know, the portions of the mood that can be managed? Um, and the, the better we do with therapy. So I have frequently sent um, patients that I have with bipolar disorder to an intensive outpatient treatment program that focuses in dialectical behavioral therapy. And it's been very, very helpful for them. It helps when they have comorbid anxiety disorders or substance abuse disorders, and it can help with these things as well. So that is incredibly important. Um, the other thing that is really, really helpful for individuals with bipolar disorder is an anger management program. Um, because anger and irritability do come alongside, and many times people don't know what to do with this. So an anger management program or a therapist who specializes with anger management, substance abuse, if needed, those types of things can be absolutely important. Um, so those types of treatments, and again, Charlene, as you said earlier, we treat the mood disorder, and then we see what's left over. Do we need to treat the, um, the anxiety that's along with it? Or did treating the mood disorder take care of the anxiety? Do we still have depressive symptoms that we need to put people on? You know, um, there are apps out there for um, mood, mood, daily mood charts. Um, there are, I wanted to toss in um, some, also some media type therapy and um, having someone work with media therapy and things can also be very helpful in looking at the insight. I wanted to uh, mention three movies um, that are actually really helpful for people. These are all adults, unfortunately. This is myself. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm excited. I don't know if Ben had told you or not, but uh, uh, I do um, their, uh, therapeutically applied role playing games um, as social skills groups. So I actually use games like Dungeons and Dragons to help people gain that insight into their behaviors and things like that. So you said movies and I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes. And, and honestly, role playing games, um, those types of things can be very, very helpful in helping people manage various disorders, obviously, but helping people to manage, especially um, younger um children, adolescents, who, young adults who are um, 
who that's their language. That's the language they speak oftentimes. Um, even, you know, even other adults who are older who may have that interest as well. And it can be very helpful because it gives them a context. Here's where we're going to try out this context. I want to make it really clear that therapy is usually needs to be in combination with medication, but a good combination of therapy and medication can often decrease the amount of medication someone needs and combined people can live a very, very healthy life. Um, very productive life. This is very, very, it's a very treatable disorder. Some of the movies that I like to recommend for family members, for people to, you know, help understand the disorder better. One is called The Ghost and the Whale. Uh, the second is called Infinitely Polar Bear. And the third that I like to recommend is called Touched with Fire. And, and, and these are, um, there are some, there are certainly movies out there where they touch on bipolar disorder, but sometimes it's glamorized. Sometimes it is not presented accurately. These are three that are accepted as being presented fairly accurately, um, not being glamorized. Um, and, and of course, you know, everything is, you know, everything is dramatized. Um, but these are um, accepted as being fairly good representations of the struggles that people with bipolar disorder have and their families. So those are, those are three that I wanted to recommend. I really appreciate you. Um, you bring up movies. Um, cause you know, as, as, so Charlene mentioned, she uses role-playing games and I also, I oftentimes do utilize movies, uh, or TV shows when I'm working with clients, because as you said, Dr. Tyler, that's their language. Um, and maybe they can't explain their own symptoms, but they can tell you about the, the character's symptoms. And the fact that they connected with that character really tells a lot because while they see themselves in that character, even if they can't say, well, I have this and this and this, they can't do that. But they can say, yeah, this character from this show, they you know get really energized for a long period of time and they don't need sleep and all this stuff. But then they kind of get into trouble because they act out. That kind of tells you so much more. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you you bring up these movies, and I will probably. I was going to say, yeah. So I guess the other thing too that uh, you know, bringing up movies and popular culture and things like that, um, Doctor Tyler, I wanted to. I know colloquially, I kind of know of some historical figures that that may have been um, bipolar. Um, I just. Um, Part of what I wanted to say, too, was, you know, with bipolar, it obviously, you know, um, to be healthy, it needs to be managed. But do you find that your your clients are a little bit more creative as well um, when, when they're on the bipolar spectrum? Absolutely. Um, yes. One of the things, one of the, mania is a love-hate type situation, um, but I frequently find that my patients who have bipolar disorder, um, when they get into the manic episode, they're very creative people anyway, but when they get into the manic episodes, there is a lot of creativity that can be done. And so, the, and this is one of the reasons that people will avoid um, taking medication or taking it for very long or things like that, because they feel like they're going to be giving that up. Mm -hmm. Medication well-managed will not give that up. Correct. Um, 
it may give up the, you know, let me write a book in four hours. It may <laughs> give that up because the energy, you know, and, and how many, I, I mean, how many of my patients and many patients actually finish the book in four hours, but we've got a really good start. But one of the things that they find is that they're more able to consistently work on these creative projects, more consistently be able to be present, to finish, to complete. And the medication can be very helpful. I do want to emphasize, and the research is very clear, that medication should not cause people to be zombies. It, it should not do that. Now, if someone is hospitalized, and I want to be really clear about this, if someone is hospitalized for a manic episode, a severe depressive episode, a suicide ideation or attempt, the hospital is going to start high and go low with medication. They are because you're not in the hospital for very long. So the so the medication will be started with everything on a fairly high dose. People will feel like zombies. This is not the way it works um, in the outside world. If someone goes to a a private practice psychiatrist or someone, most psychiatrists outside of a hospital will start low and go slow. But if for some reason you are an individual who has started from the hospital, your psychiatrist will help taper that down to where you can function optimally without having the episodes. And so understand that medication with a bipolar disorder, frustratingly, is also a trial and error because it is different for every person. But you want the psychiatrist who will work with you to adjust not just to find you stable and then keep you on that for five years, but also to adjust when sometimes the manic episodes come up anyway. Sometimes the depressive episodes are more often than what has been for the last couple of years who will adjust and then adjust back. But if you, for some reason, have been on a large cocktail of medications because of hospitalization or other reasons, work with a psychiatrist who will get you to an optimal balance. And then your work and productivity can still be there. Your creativity can still be there. All of those things that you love and enjoy can still be there. Yeah, that's something I really enjoy about my bipolar clients is they are so creative. And I, you know, I, I definitely, Benjamin, you talk about superpowers, right? And superhero therapy, like with my ADHD, now that it's treated, I can use all of that energy and it can be laser focused now. And I'm, I, I've, made, I've done in six months what people normally do in three years, right, when it comes to my business and things like that. So when it's treated, it almost like focuses it in to, to, to be able to use it when you want it, how you want it, you know, um, and things like that, at least with ADHD, I know. Um, and with my, my bipolar clients, it's, they're all so creative. And I know there's, and, and I didn't want to say these unless, uh, Dr. Tyler, you have to tell me whether they're true or not, but like, you know, that Van Gogh may have been, um, you know, bipolar and that Abraham Lincoln, I think, was was, um, you know, people think as well. He might have also had an issue like that. So these are great people. These are, are you know, amazing artists and great thinkers. Um, it's just, you know, again, hyper focusing that, you know, that energy and that creativity into something that you want to do instead of feeling like you have to do it. Right. Absolutely. And, and there are thoughts that both of those individuals you talked about were um, Ernest Hemingway, for example, was diagnosed officially with a bipolar disorder. He did end his life by suicide eventually. 
um, because there were not good medications back then. Um, but that is that's something that was was an official diagnosis for him. Um, we we do know um, sadly that Robin Williams also had bipolar disorder and ended his life by suicide. Um, some of the most creative people, um, and from from what I understand, some of the most difficult when untreated were the the lows that that people experienced, um, whether suspected to have bipolar disorder or accident, actually diagnosed. Um, these are, you know, the, the, again, going back to where I came in, we see people many times at their best and we think of them at their best and what we don't always see because it happens in private is the, the demons, the, the lows and the difficulties. And what I want to say is that these are the things that can be treated. These are the things that can be managed. Um, I want to also be clear that bipolar disorder is a very difficult disorder to treat and to manage. And having stability doesn't mean that someone will never have another up or down episode, um, but it makes it more likely to live a stable life. There are what I may call relapses and people need to, one of the things when I treat my patients is we focus on the relapse. We know it will come. And so we prepare for it. Um, we don't know when it will come, but it's like many other chronic disorder, chronic medical disorders. Fibromyalgia is a really good one. Chronic fatigue syndrome is another. Some days we have good days. And so with my patients, we plan for those things that they will do on the good days. And we plan for the things that they need to have on the bad days. I actually have patients who will pre prepare meals and freeze them for the bad days so good that idea. they continue yep. to be able to eat and maintain a healthy diet to hope that the bad days are not as long and not as pronounced. So understanding that this, like many other physical disorders that we have, diabetes, other things, need to be managed on a daily basis, but at the same time, they are very manageable. There will still be ups and downs, there will still be difficulties, and there will be triumphs. There will be the ability to maintain many of the things that people love, if not all of them, but it really does take, as Benjamin said earlier, a laser-sharp focus to be able to keep these managed through all of the work with therapists, with medication, and with the things that the individual is able to do and the support of their families and friends. I think that's a fantastic uh, place to end. Yeah. Is, you know, just because it, it's difficult does not mean that you can't still thrive. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's, I mean, that's our goal for this podcast is to let people know that just because mental health conditions exist doesn't mean that people are without hope. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are treatable, they're manageable, there's recovery. You can thrive. Yeah, you really can. As long as you are doing the mm -hmm. work. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I concur. This is a great place to end on a high note. Um, and I just, usually we do a, um, a closeout here at the end. Um, and I just, usually we talk about where you can find each of us. Um, you can find me at Nat 20 therapy on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find me at true form unseen on TikTok. And guess what, Benjamin, 
my website is now live. Oh my goodness. So, yes. Uh, that is nat20therapy.com. You can all go check that out as well. So Benjamin, where are we going to find you? Uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook and Twitter at the Mental Health Quest podcast. Um, I am also in the process of starting another podcast uh, called My Hero Therapy, where we discuss the anime My Hero Academia and learn how to be heroes in real life. Uh, that is still a work in progress, but I do have a Facebook and Twitter and Instagram for that as well. Dr. Tyler, where, where might we find you? Well, I am a little less um, social media savvy, <laughs> so you will likely not find me on most social media. I do have a website um, that is still a work in progress at drchristinaroberts.com, and I apologize. I am in the middle of a name change, and that will eventually, um, <laughs> but currently it is still drchristinaroberts.com. Um, but that's where you will find Dr. Tyler. And um, you also can email me at dr.roberts2007 at gmail.com. And otherwise, I'm um, somewhat, somewhat hidden from the social media. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfectly fine. And obviously, we wanted to also thank you very much for coming on and talking about this. I learned a whole heck of a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff was confirmed as well that that I've been seeing with my clients. I agree. I learned probably more in this, you know, one hour or so than I did in my doctor's program. So, <laughs> so we thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> and for our listeners, we'll be back again. Don't go anywhere. Bye. 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 Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm-hmm.